You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Good morning, High Park. Uh, it is good to have you this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And uh, while you're finding your place, uh, you probably have a question on your mind right now. Uh, and that question probably is, wow, he's wearing a tie. Uh, that's probably one question. Of course, I'm wearing a tie because, hey, it's Christmas, right? I want to do something special. The second question you may have on your mind is, why am I here and you guys are there? Well, uh, we had a visitor uh, that came to our house today. Uh, it wasn't a family member. It wasn't uh, St. Nick. It was uh, COVID-19. So our family is uh, dealing with that. I know that many of you have dealt with it or maybe you're dealing with it now if you're watching online. Uh, so uh, we're dealing with it as well. And uh, of course, we're gonna be quarantined just as the doctor ordered. And uh, so we appreciate your prayers also uh, just know that I'm going to be unavailable uh, for the next several days. Uh, you may have been contacted by one of our deacons. Uh, our deacons have uh, deacon families now that they're checking on. Uh, so you should have been contacted. If you haven't been, then uh, you know, let us know. We can work that out. Uh, also, Pastor Ryan, Pastor Bobby would be available to serve if any needs come up. So let's take a look at Galatians chapter 4 this morning. I'm glad you're with us. Um, I'm praying that you have a, a Merry Christmas, and I'm just so glad that uh, that you've been able to join us this morning, either on campus or online. And wasn't that just an awesome video that we just got to see? I appreciate our kids' ministry uh, putting that video together for us. I know it's a little different. Normally, we would have the kids in the worship space with us, but obviously, uh, we couldn't do that today, but that was pretty special, so I just want to say thank you. Let's take a look at Galatians chapter 4, and let's just read through these verses together, and then we'll pray. Galatians 4.1. Paul starts off, we're kind of jumping right into the middle of an argument that he's making. Uh, so that's why it seems a little weird at verse one. It says, I mean that the heir, as long as he has a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is an owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Uh, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. And Father, we certainly thank you for the Christmas season. Father, this, uh, this year uh, has been different. I know that uh, for many under the sound of my voice right now that they have faced a lot of things this year. They've they have faced loss, they have faced um, all kinds of incredible struggles. And Father, we are reminded in your word that you are still in control, that you're still on the throne, that nothing is catching you by surprise. And so Father, for this season uh, that we are in, Father, we know that it has a beginning and it has an end. Uh, and Father, we pray that uh, your grace will be sufficient for each person who is in need this morning. Guide us in your word. Uh, we need your help. We need your guidance. And Father, we pray that uh, hearts would be stirred 
changed uh, and that we would leave and face this Christmas season different than we've maybe faced any other one with joy and peace, true joy, true peace that only comes from you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So a woman was going on a vacation to Europe uh, by herself. Was going to leave her husband home with their pet cat. And after several days of traveling through Europe, she makes it to London and she decides she better call home and check and see how things were going. So she, she calls her husband and uh, she asked her husband how he was doing. And he said, well, I'm doing fine, uh, but our cat Lucy has died. And the woman begins to cry just uncontrollably, hysterically on the phone. And it, it took a while. And eventually she regains her composure. And then she says to her husband, she says, you are a brute of a man. You have, you have no feelings. I mean, how could you just say that so abruptly with not even considering my feelings at all? Well, the husband is like, well, what was I supposed to do? How was I supposed to say this other than the fact that our cat has died? So the woman thought a little bit. She said, well, this would have been a lot better if you'd done this. She said, well, when I got to London and called you, maybe you could have said, hey, uh, our cat Lucy is on the roof of the house. And, and then maybe when I got to Paris uh, and called you from Paris, she could have said, you know, uh, Lucy slipped and fell off the roof and, and she's not doing well. And then by the time I got to Rome, you could have simply said, hey, um, the cat has succumbed to his, in, uh, to his injuries and, and Lucy has died. That, that would have been a lot better and a lot easier for me to handle instead of just saying abruptly the cat has died. And then the wife uh, thinks for a moment and says, oh, by the way, how is mother doing? And her husband said, well, she's on the roof. I hope there's loud laughter at that point. Otherwise, that story failed miserably. You see, the problem was, the problem was timing. Uh, the husband's timing was off uh, in, in response to her, his wife about the passing of their cat. Maybe, maybe sometimes there's timing in your life seems all wrong. I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this, but trouble seems to come in waves and it seems to always come at the wrong time. I mean, there's never really a right time for suffering and pain and for things to go sideways, but it seems like it always comes at the worst time. As a matter of fact, it seems like when one thing fails, five things fail, or when one thing is going wrong, five things are going wrong. And when we take a look at Mary and Joseph, I mean, think about this story. Think about the Christmas story in the respect of timing. So here you have a young teenage girl and she's about 14, 15, maybe at the oldest, 16 years old. Uh, she is single, but she is betrothed. She's engaged to Joseph. And, and we know that a betrothal, an engagement in Joseph's day and Mary's day is a lot different than it is today. It really is marriage without all of the... Uh, uh, extras that go along with it. They're, they're really technically married by their culture. So uh, an angel visits Mary and says to Mary, uh, you're going to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and you're going to have a child conceived in your womb, of course, without the participation of Joseph. And of course, this is going to bring all kinds of difficulty into her life because now viewed by her culture, here is a young lady who's betrothed to Joseph who's now pregnant. And there's only one conclusion that any of the people in her culture would have been able to come to, and that is that she's committed adultery, that she has she has stepped out as a teenager and has uh, slept with another man, and that's why she's pregnant. Uh, the timing of that, uh, from a human perspective, would have been 
horrifically hard to bear, but it doesn't just stop there. Eventually, um, even the scandalous nature of, of this pregnancy begins to spread all through her community. Uh, eventually, you know, Joseph has a vision and he's told to stay with Mary. Uh, during her ninth month of pregnancy, right when she's about to give birth, they're going to have to take a journey, a 90-mile journey, uh, all the way to Bethlehem. It would have taken maybe as much as seven days to make that journey. It would have been a very difficult journey. It would have been uh, very hard for Mary and Joseph to make that trip. And just think about all of the stress and all of the tension and talk about bad timing. Not only that, uh, but you've got Caesar Augustus who's called for this census and everyone is having to travel. So everyone is kind of being inconvenienced. But what's amazing is what sometimes seems like really bad timing uh, actually ends up being uh, God working. What sometimes seems like bad circumstances actually ends up God's sovereign grace being poured out afresh in your life. It's sometimes we just don't see it that way because of the pain and the trouble and the difficulty and the waves of thing that come, things that come into our life. We don't always see that as God's hand moving, but if you think about it, if you've been following Jesus for a while, if you look back across your life, you're probably gonna to come to the conclusion that those times of trouble and difficulty and hard circumstances were exactly those moments where you grew in your faith, where you felt the presence of God unlike anything you'd felt before. So what we wanna look at in Galatians 4 is where Paul talks about the nativity. He talks about the birth, and this is one of the only places that Paul makes reference to the birth of Christ in all of his writings, which I think is amazing, considering all of the theology that Paul has given us. Of course, his focus was more on Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension, and, and, and the gospel. But here he mentions the importance of the birth of Christ. So when we jump right into this, and we're kind of getting in right in the middle of a kind of an argument that he's making, and the argument is, is that how does the law work with the promises that God has made? And we don't have time to get into all that this morning, but pick it up in verse one, and he's gonna start with an illustration here that's pretty powerful. He says, he's talking about an heir, and as long as a child, as long as he is a child, he's no different than a slave, though the owner of everything, but he is under guardians. So get this picture. Imagine you've got a wealthy father, a wealthy family, and let's imagine that, that the father dies, and he's got a lot of money, a lot of resources, a lot of assets. And let's imagine that he has two small children in the house. Imagine maybe a kindergartner and maybe a third grader. Well, it would be absolutely insane to give those two children uh, a blank checkbook, um, give them control of the house and the assets and the business. It would be, it would be crazy to hand them a million, two million, five billion dollars expecting them to be able to handle that in a mature way. So what would happen is, as the, the wealthy father in the preparation of his will and preparing for his death, he would have put the kids under a guardianship. Notice what he says here. He says that even though the kids are the owner of everything, they are under guardians and managers until a date set by the father. In other words, the father would have left instructions that once they reached a certain age, let's say 21, at that point, at age 21, that they would then become the, the heir of all that their dad had. Now, what is Paul, what's the argument that Paul's making here? Paul is making the argument that for, for many, 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 many years of, of the Jewish state, uh, they were under the system of law and sacrifice. They were under a system that, that although that system pointed to Christ and pointed to a Messiah and pointed 
ultimately to a promised son that would come and and would, would die and, and do amazing things and restore the nation of Israel. But not only that, but would welcome other nations that would welcome the Gentiles in. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah all spoke about that. But what Paul's saying here is, is during that period of time, there was a period of time that everyone was waiting. Now, while they were waiting, they were under a system of law. And that law was helping to restrain evil. It was helping them to uh, learn about faith and put their faith in God, to go to the temple and offer sacrifices as an atonement for their sins. But, but it was anticipation of something. It was a, a guardian that was waiting for a certain time, a specific time to come to where the Messiah would come and he would fulfill all of the law and all the requirements of the law. The reality is, is that the Jewish people, no matter how strong and how well they kept the law, they still weren't perfect. You see, that's the thing about the law as defined in scripture, is that the law only can point out the sin, it can't fix the sinner. It can bring conviction, it can bring restraint, but it can't change a heart. Uh, if you get caught speeding, you know, you're gonna get a ticket, you may have to go to court. None of that fixes the speeding problem. Now you can argue that if you get enough speeding tickets and you spend enough money, eventually you start backing off the pedal, but the fact that you got the ticket, the fact that you had to pay the fine doesn't necessarily fix the speeding problem. So the law is there to point out the problem, but it can't fix the problem. So all of this time, all of this, these many years of the Israelite nation going through the processes of sacrificing and, and going to the temple and worshiping, that was out of obedience and faith in God, but it was waiting for something better. Now notice what Paul says here. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Uh, he says here uh, that these elementary principles, that these things that were not what it means to follow Jesus. In other words, keeping the law, being faithful to the law, and all of that pointed to Jesus were those elementary principles, that we were enslaved to those things, that that the Jewish people, that was the process that God had set forth. Now understand that salvation in the Old Testament is still the same as Old Testament as New Testament. It's still an expression of faith uh, in God's promises. However, they didn't have the full revelation of Christ. We do. And notice what uh, Paul says next. He says in verse four, but when the fullness of time came, at just the right time, at the perfect time, that idea of fullness means that that it was like a, a, a cup that was full to the brim and almost ready to spill over, that at just the right time, at exactly the time that God had ordained, Jesus Christ was born of a woman, born of Mary, that God sent forth his son. This fullness of time is a pretty interesting thing to consider. I want to give you just some things really quickly that you may have not thought about or considered. Why was it that Jesus came at this specific time in history. Why was it that Jesus didn't come maybe 400 years earlier? I mean, we talk about the 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, why didn't Jesus come earlier? Well, there's a lot of reasons why God decided that this particular time in Bethlehem is when Jesus would come. First of all, at this particular time in history, uh, Rome had uh, come to a place of peace. They they experienced about 200 years of peace. In other words, there was this period of time where there was not a lot of turmoil and it was like the, the peak of the Roman Empire. And during that time, uh, of course, the Jews are subjugated to the Rome, Romans and, and that the Romans uh, basically had enslaved the Jews. The Jews were, didn't have freedom. But what was interesting was is that 
The Romans demanded that everyone worship Caesar, but the Jews were just stubborn. They would not worship Caesar. They would not uh, give worship to Caesar. So over a period of time, eventually Rome just said, okay, we're going to kind of make an exception for the Jews. If the Jews don't want to worship Caesar, fine, because Rome just kind of wanted to keep the peace. They didn't want to have this constant upheaval uh, in their nation. So they came to a place where they just said to the Jews, okay, worship the God you want to worship. That happened right before Jesus was born. Now, what's interesting about that is Christianity, early Christianity was seen by the Romans as just a, another sect of Judaism. So they were tolerant of Christianity, at least up to 70 AD, simply because that they had given the Jews the right to worship their own God. And Christianity was all seen as just another sect of Judaism. Another thing you've got to understand is during this time of peace, Rome built roads all over the Roman Empire. So by the time we get to the book of Acts and the New Testament church, we see Paul and we see Peter and we see John traveling the very roads that Rome had built. And they're using those roads as a way to plant churches and share the gospel all over the empire. Now that happened right during the same time frame that God chose to allow his son to be born. Alexander the Great had conquered the world. The Greek language had permeated every part of the Roman Empire and, and it had spread to more people in more places. And what's interesting is, is during that same time frame, more people had, been, had gained the ability to read just because of the Greek language. So more and more and more people could read at exactly the same time that Jesus would come, the gospels would be written, Paul would write his letters, and people all over the empire would be able to read uh, the gospel and see and hear and, and understand what Jesus did. And not only that, the Greek language itself is very precise. It's a very precise language. So at the time the Bible is going to be written, the New Testament written in Greek, it's written in a language that it has great precision. And of course, God used that to make sure that the clarity of the gospel was spread. Uh, the other thing, the spread of Greek philosophy, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, uh, they, were, they were speaking and teaching and raising huge life questions, but they had no answers to the questions. Well, here comes Paul and Luke and James and John, and they begin to answer those life questions from the gospel. And then finally, um, there's been 400 years of silence. And then God breaks that silence with Zechariah in the temple to tell Zechariah that he's going to have a son. The one thing that he wanted, a son. So all of the waiting and all of the preparing and all of the looking and all of the hoping, all of a sudden, in a single moment of time, in the fullness of time, historically speaking, the perfect time. From, uh, from a standpoint of the nation and the world awaiting and being able to understand the gospel and hear the gospel, perfect timing. God sent forth his son. Jesus didn't come into existence in Bethlehem. There are cults who teach that, that, that Jesus did not exist as part of the Godhead Trinity in eternity past. And of course, that is heretical teaching. The Bible clearly states in Philippians 2 and Colossians 1, uh, 15 and following, that, that Jesus was in existence in the Godhead Trinity in eternity past. As far back as you want to look, Jesus was there. And, and in his perfection and in his beauty, part of the Godhead Trinity. So Jesus didn't begin to exist in Bethlehem. He predated Bethlehem for millions and billions of years. However, Jesus takes on a robe of flesh. He becomes human, 
God puts on flesh. And the amazing thing about what Paul says here, listen to this. Paul says that in the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Think about that contrast. God's son sent born of a woman. There you have in that single phrase, God and man, 100% God, 100% man coming together. And in the womb of Mary, she has the God man. To me, that's incredible. To me, that that is that it supersedes uh, all the things that we we know about Christmas and we celebrate at Christmas. The fact is, is that we should never lose our wonder of the fact that that one single sentence says that God's Son, who has lived and existed in eternity past, took on a robe of flesh and was born in Bethlehem. Notice what else Paul says. Paul says, not only was he sent forth and born of a woman, but he was born under the law. The Bible tells us that eight days after Jesus's birth, uh, he was taken to the temple and he was circumcised. Well, what little bit we know about his life, we see him again at about age 12 in Luke's account, that he was at the temple worshiping. We see that, that Jesus was practicing uh, in, in accordance to the law, his, his Jewish faith, right? That he was a Jewish man raised in a Jewish family. He was born under the law. And not only under the law, but he kept the law perfectly in every sense of the word. That the law, as you and I understand it, and as the word teaches us, is that the law requires perfection. That, that to be right with God means to be perfect. Um, the Jews had spent years and years and years upon years upon years trying to keep the law, yet they had not reached perfection. Jesus born of a woman, born under the law, and notice what else Paul says here, to redeem those who were under law. Here's the thing. The law requires something of us. So if you, if you get that speeding ticket, uh, the police officer that pulls you over is going to say, here's your ticket, and then you're going to say, no, I'm going to go to court. I'm, I'm going to go to court. I'm not paying the fine. I'm going to go fight this. You go to court, judge looks at you and says, are you guilty or are you innocent? Guilty or innocent? That's that's all we want to know. The judge is going to pass judgment. He's going to say, based on the police report, that you're guilty. There's no grace. There's no uh, fixing the problem. Simply, you're either guilty or you're innocent. And that's what the law holds over our head. But but what Jesus did is he came and fulfilled the law. And then when we put our faith in him, the perfection that is required of us to be right with God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And notice what Paul says next to redeem those who were under the law, and here it is, so that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. So imagine you're in that courtroom and you're guilty. I mean, you're guilty. You, you, you deserve to be punished. And all that is left is for the punishment to be given out. And the judge is about to hit the gavel and he's about to pass the judgment and it just so happens that the crime you've committed that you're guilty of is going to be a judgment of death. When we look at the Bible, when we look about the perfection that God requires of us, the penalty for missing that mark of perfection is death. So you're standing in the courtroom and, and the judgment's going to be given down. And right about the time that the gavel's about to hit the desk, the, the judge's son comes in. You, you don't really know him. You know he's He's the judge's son. The judge's son begins to talk to the judge and the, the son offers himself to take the punishment that you deserve. Now, the son has nothing to do as far with, with your guilt. I mean, you're guilty. He didn't commit the crime, you did. 
But in this single moment, the son, because of love and because of mercy, because of grace, is going to extend to you what the law could never extend to you, and that is a second chance. Not only a second chance, but a heart that is changed. Not only a heart that is changed, <clears throat> but grace, unmerited favor. The son says to the judge, which is his dad, says, look, I'm going to take his punishment. We want to give him the chance to go free. And then the judge, instead of passing the gavel and passing judgment on you, puts the judgment on the son. But then it gets even more bizarre, even more outlandish. The judge looks down from the bench and he says, you know, not only are we going to give you mercy, but I'm going to offer you an incredible deal. I'm going to adopt you as my son. And you're going to have all the full rights of being my son and a joint heir with, with my other son who stood in your place and is taking your punishment. And, and you're going to become my child. Maybe you walked in there fatherless, but you walked out. You walked in there guilty. You walked in there without any hope. You walked in there with no peace, no hope, no future. But you're walking out a free man or a free woman. You're walking out the recipient of grace. You're walking out in freedom, adopted as a son or daughter of the judge, the creator of the world. Now, the only, the only part of that is, is that you've got to understand is that in that moment when the son offers to take your punishment, he's already done that. Uh, Jesus has already taken your punishment. He's already, he's already taking all of our sins upon himself. And what he, what he asks of you is, is that you put your faith in him. Now, wouldn't it be terrible to be standing before the judge? The son has already paid the debt. They're offering you grace. And you look at both of them and go, no, I'm good. I've got this. No, I'm good. I'm, I'm just going to work harder. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a better person. No, I'm, I'm just going to put it off a couple of days. I mean, that would be ludicrous, right? Yes, it would absolutely be. So here, here's the amazing thing. For those of you who put your faith in Jesus, celebrate the fact this Christmas, uh, that Christmas morning when you're getting up and the kids are uh, going crazy and uh, papers flying everywhere and boxes are being torn open. Uh, take some time. Take some time and consider the fullness of time uh, in a place called Bethlehem where a teenage girl gave birth to a son who was conceived in her womb by the Holy Spirit in perfection simply for the case, simply for the fact, simply for the purpose of being born under the law, keeping that law perfectly, and then offering, him, offering himself as a sacrifice for the wrath that you deserved. So I think around the Christmas tree, that's Luke 2 story that we often talk about. I think that is exactly appropriate to be doing that. And I hope that you'll spend that time and reflect on really what that Christmas tree and those gifts really point to the greatest gift in the light of the world. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, you'd have to admit that standing there in that moment when Jesus has done all that he's done, uh, he's proven his love to you a thousandfold. Why in the world would you reject that kind of grace? Why would you reject that kind of love? Hi, Parker, I want to say Merry Christmas to you. I want to say uh, that I hope you stay safe. Uh, I will see you soon, uh, if not in person, uh, across this wonderful uh, opportunity of technology that God has given us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are awesome and you are mighty. Help us to not lose our focus this Christmas on what this is really about. Father, I think that um, what COVID-19 has done 
as it's taken away of a lot of other things we could be doing. And we're spending our time in ways that we probably wouldn't have been otherwise. So while we're ready for this virus to go away, where we're so ready to move on, Father, help us to learn all that we can learn in the middle of it. Because Father, you're speaking. May we listen. Father, I pray that for every family uh, that is here, every family that is watching online, I pray, Father, that you keep them safe. And Father, I pray that in all things, their heart is right where it needs to be with you, that they've experienced your grace and your mercy. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 